Aliens and flying saucers. Hey, welcome to the 47th episode of Two Writers Slinging Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated senior writer, former ESPN columnist, author of multiple New York Times bestsellers, and a columnist for The Athletic. The music you're listening to is Croissant's Master by the amazing MC White Owl. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms, from journalism to songwriting to screenwriting to novels to romance to comics to whatever genre I'm thinking of. And today... After a brief topic hiatus, we're returning to sports. My guest is Jesus Ortiz, the sports columnist for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. I've known Jesus dating back to my SI days, when he was an up-and-coming Mets beat writer for the Newark Star-Ledger. And as he's moved from the Big Apple to Houston to St. Louis, he's really emerged as one of the best sports scribes in the business. And today we're going to touch on a bunch of things. The power of speaking Spanish in a major league clubhouse, opining on hockey when you know little about hockey, dealing with angry readers and their disgusting, bigoted comments. So kick back, relax, and get comfortable, because it's all right now on Two Writers Singing Yang. All right, Jesus, the first time I became aware of you was back in New York when you were, you were working for the Star Ledger, and you were, uh, you were a beat writer for the Mets from 99 to 2001. And I, I was given a lot of Mets at Sports Illustrated. And I have this very vivid imagery of you in the Mets clubhouse having these long conversations in Spanish with uh, Met players whose first language was Spanish. And I remember thinking, number one, I thought it really annoyed the, the longtime sort of white writers who covered the Mets that you had what, what, what they probably considered to be an advantage. And number two, I remember thinking how jealous I was and how kind of important it was that you were able to have these conversations where it seems like oftentimes in baseball, Spanish speaking players were really thought of with in sort of negative connotations, words like aloof, uh, lazy, um, you know, and, and I think a lot of that was due to the language barrier. Were you aware that, that maybe there were some writers who sort of resented over you speaking Spanish with these guys and them being unable to? Most of the guys on the Mets beat are, are real good friends. So I, I didn't get that sense, but everybody has a tool that they're real good at, you know, and, and I, I think Spanish was, was something that helped me tremendously and, and has helped me throughout my whole career. And I've tried to use it to kind of explain what people may not understand. I mean, we had an incident here just two weeks ago with Tori Lovello of the Arizona Diamondbacks, MFing Yadier Molina. And I decided to try to explain. I wasn't covering that game, but I tweeted how in Latino culture, I totally understood why Yadier Molina wanted to fight him. Because although I was born in the U.S. and raised in L.A., my parents are from Mexico. So I knew that the biggest insult you could give a, a Mexican or a Latino is, is to mention their mother. And Spanish is called a mentada de madre. So I knew what was going on. And I got a lot of feedback from people on, on Twitter saying, oh, so you're saying that it's just an, an insult in Latino culture. I said, no, I never said that. But it, I know in American culture, I'll have friends MF me as a compliment while complimenting me on something. And then that Sunday, when Molina was talking to the media, he mentioned how, you know, my mom is watching. And some fans couldn't understand why he would take it so literally. 
I've covered baseball for over 20 years, but that's been one of the things that I've been proudest of is, is being able to kind of explain where these guys are coming from. You know, I still remember uh, in 2000 doing a feature on uh, Edgardo Alfonso, and he told me how early in his career, after he did had a clutch hit, he'd be at second base having driven in a run, and he'd be fretting instead of celebrating like every other player would be celebrating. He was fretting having to deal with the media because he didn't feel comfortable with his English. And, I, and I've tried to, you know, Carlos Martinez here or, you know, Armando Benitez, just try to speak to everybody. But but I also take great pride in, you know, the, the people I've been closest with in baseball, Roy Oswald, Billy Wagner, and those guys could not be any more country. But, but you know, it's like everybody else, like trying to relate with these players and tell their story and have them feel confident enough in trusting you with their story. You know, when I started, I think there were three bilingual baseball writers. Now we have like something like 10. Uh, so we've made some progress in the last 20 years. Do you feel like the mainstream media in America, mainstream sports media, suffers from a misunderstanding perhaps of what uh, a lot of ballplayers from Spanish-speaking countries go through, experience? There's been something missing. I, I you know, I, I don't want to come off as, as critiquing the coverage. Every baseball writer I'm friends with tells me, Man, I, I wish I could learn Spanish. J.P. Morosi, he was a, a, a Hearst fellow at the Houston Chronicle early in his career. And every time he sees me, he, he reminds me how that I told him, I said, you know, you have to work on your Spanish. And here's this white kid, one of the, one of the reporters who said, Hey, I really want to be able to speak to these guys. And he's gone on his way. He's learned Spanish. He does interviews in Spanish. And he and I were, were speaking about this in spring training. You get different stories. You get different access if you just try. And one thing that, you know, I hear often from baseball writers who say, man, I really wish I, I could have learned Spanish. And then I talk to them 10 years later. They, they tell me the same thing. And I wonder, well, why didn't you, you've had 10 years to learn? I remember when I was in, in New York, I bought a Japanese English book, you know, to, to try to speak to some of the Japanese players. And, you know, we had a Korean here in St. Plain in St. Louis. And I, I tried to practice at least a word a week to try to, so that they know that I cared enough to try to either, you know, just a simple greeting is appreciated. I have a column of yours in front of me and it's, uh, it's not from that long ago, April 9th, 2008, uh, post dispatch. Allen's failures lead blues, lead to blues missing playoffs. And it's about, um, it's about the goalie for the St. Louis Blues, Jake Allen. And your lead was, it should not have been this close. The Blues should have been preparing for the playoff Saturday night instead of fighting for their season against the Colorado Avalanche. Yet they were sweating it out until the season finale at the Pepsi Center because goaltender Jake Allen failed more often than is acceptable for a starting goaltender this season. I was wondering, I'm fascinated by a guy who has mainly covered baseball with some soccer in there and certainly some long form. Is it hard as a columnist in being authoritative in your assessment of sports that you have not covered regularly? I tell you, that's been the biggest challenge here in St. Louis because I was brought in, you know, and I pretty much, I hadn't covered hockey since the 2006 Olympics in Torito. So I, I, I get here a decade later and, and I get jumped in brought straight into the hockey playoffs. That was very difficult to try to make opinions, but in the off season, and you talked to Doug Armstrong, the GM, Mike Yo, um, or even Ken Hitchcock. I spent 
many hours during the regular season, during the preseason, during the offseason, meeting these guys, speaking to these guys on the phone, and just trying to learn the sport, trying to, and I, you know, I lean on our beat writers. But with all that said, some of those things are very obvious when the stats, they're undeniable. And, and I was, I was laughing. I, I spoke to Doug Armstrong, the, the GM of the Blues, three separate times. And we were talking about the power play. And I made a joke. I said, when I realize how bad things are, surely you have to make a change. And I made that joke twice about Jake Allen, about the power play. But it's about, you know, being able to trust guys, building relationships. You know, I'm the first reporter that Vladimir Tarasenko led into his house. And you work these relationships. You always show up. And that, I think, has helped me learn the sport, you know. And, and I've worked real hard at it because, quite honestly, in St. Louis, without the NFL, there are only two things. I've written a lot of hockey and, and gone to a lot of games when, when I wasn't writing to try to learn, uh, to try to build relationships. But honestly, I, I lean on the GM. I lean on the coach. I lean on a couple of key players, guys who I call. And people have no idea that I've been talking to these guys to try to get a good pulse of, of the team. But no, absolutely. Right. You're, you're dead. You're absolutely correct. It is the first year was frightening. You know, I could watch a baseball game and in 15 minutes on deadline feel very comfortable with the column I wrote and I could cover an afternoon hockey game and three hours later still feel like, oh my Lord, what did I do? And it's just, right. it's a comfort zone. But as a columnist, you, you have to have an opinion, but I try to have an, an educated opinion based on just good sound reporting. I feel like we live in an era now especially with social media, especially with Twitter, where the impulse is so-and-so sucks or so-and-so is awesome. This guy's the best so-and-so or this guy's the worst so-and-so. As a columnist, is there an impulse that you need to have an absolute? I think that the impulse, and I don't know if you've noticed, um, you're very active on social media, so, and I'm sure, but I've, I've tried to, to not be that guy. For instance, just last week uh, or two weeks ago, where everybody was crushing the manager for his bullpen moves, the way I approach it is to try to explain how I would have done it and and try to explain why the manager did things. And but more than that, go and ask the guy. What, what I don't, what I, what I have issue with is is reporters or columnists who take shots and never show up. And I was trained in New York. I was trained in L.A. And one thing that I respected about the New York writers, that they ripped somebody and then they showed up the next day. And Mike Bethany will tell you, you know, when I ripped them last year, I showed up on my day off just so he'd have a chance to speak out. And damn if he didn't shake my hand afterwards and say, thank you for coming here. Wow. And, and he gave me his side. He let me know he was disappointed. I mean, the first thing he said was, man, Jesus, I was one of, I thought you were one of the ones who understood what we're trying to do here. And then I, I told him why I thought his team did not live up to the Cardinals standards. We discussed it. He gave his side and explained the roster. And, and, and I said, quite simply, Mike, 
would you have accepted this this type of play when you were a cardinal? And then he he mentioned some things that that he wanted that he didn't want to go on the record with, but kind of explained what he was his side. And we had a 15-minute discussion in which we disagreed most of the time and and he he pointed out some issues that he had with my column. But afterwards, it was the coolest thing because here's this six foot five dude extending his hand and says, but thank you for being here. I take a lot of bullets, but you're here and I respect that. And, you know, whether it's Brett Cecil, the day, I mean, this is a guy that just bailed on us after imploding and I crushed him. I, I crushed him in the paper, but the very next day I showed up, stood at his locker. And you have to be there. I save my shots for, you know, I try to remember that everybody's mom might be reading. So I try not to take any cheap shots. Uh, you, you, you know, I've known you for almost two decades now. That's just not the way I deal with things. But, but when I do write a negative column, I show up the next day and I think the players appreciate it. And, you know, I've been told. By the Cardinals, I've been told by the Blues. Uh, you know, I called for Doug Armstrong's job last year. A few hours later, I was front row right in the middle. My bosses asked me if I'd take video. So I'm in the middle on the floor taking video. And Doug Armstrong respected that not only did I show up, but I was front and center. I wrote some critical things about some Cardinals players and, and their work ethic. And the first day of spring training, when I was there for first day, I was there for spring training. I went straight to him to say hi. And I've been, you know, I've been cursed out by guys who are Hall of Famers now. I was going to ask you, what what's the time you think of where that didn't go so well? Obviously, it was the right thing to do. But what was your worst encounter after writing something on someone? I wrote in 2004, I wrote a column. Uh, all our columnists were at the Olympics. So they had the beat writers write columns, which is never a good idea because the beat writers have to come back. And, and I wrote a column kind of telling the readers what uh, Craig Biggio's teammates thought of him. <laughs> and uh, so I show up to Wrigley Field, and I walk in the clubhouse, and all the guys are, like, literally, like, laughing, giving me high five because they couldn't believe that somebody had written this column, you know, for the first time. You know, here's one of the untouchables in Houston. So then I go straight to I, – I kind of – ripped on Bagwell and Bijou. And I go up to Bagwell and Bagwell says, hey, I had no problem with what you wrote. And Bagwell to this day, like whenever I call him, he calls me right back. I have a great relationship with him. Craig Bijou, the same thing. I have a great working relationship with him. I was texting with him just on, on Sunday or Saturday. And the first thing he said was, F you, Ortiz. That was personal. And I, and I said, Craig, you know that wasn't personal. <laughs> And, but it, it felt personal to him. And, but you know what? I, I had great respect for Craig because he told me how he felt. I explained my side. And, you know, when he was going to the Hall of Fame, when he was going after 3000, I've had so much access to him. And he knew that ultimately he knew that it wasn't personal when, when he did great things. I was going to write that he did great things. And yeah, I was asked to write a column and, and I chose that subject. And in retrospect, as a beat writer, I would, if I were sports editor, I wouldn't ask my beat writers to 
to write opinion pieces on the guys they cover. Cause it, I mean, it right. sucked that, that whole, that whole next, you know, end of 2004 was tough when, you know, one of the biggest stars on the team thinks you're a hole. I feel like a lot of writers, they're terrified of the confrontation. They like having the power of the pen, but they don't like having to actually face the person. Like, are you not nervous going? So you write this about Craig Biggio. Are you not then at least slightly nervous walking up to him? Is that, is that just not part of the way you think about it? Yes, I was nervous, but I had enough faith in Craig's professionalism and my professionalism and the fact that you owe it to people that if you rip them, you have to wear it. And, you know, hey, I, I've put my foot in my mouth enough times to know that sometimes you make mistakes and, and I've made mistakes and, um, you just, you just have to own it. And, but also like, you also have to be confident in what you wrote and be able to back it up because if you get paid to, to critique people for a living, you better have the, the guts that you, you owe it to the people to, to be able to, the only, the only time I've been threatened in a clubhouse was in 2001 and it was Mike Jackson, the big reliever for, for the Astros. Yeah. And it was funny as hell because he punched or, or attacked the pitching coach, Bert Hooten. And we're outside after this game in San Diego and you could hear people fighting. We didn't know who was fighting, but we could hear them fighting. And it didn't take long, you know, for people to, to let me know who was in the fight, what happened. So I go up to Mike Jackson and he said, Hey, you know, don't F with me. I'm from the third ward, you know, third ward of Houston, predominantly black area. Mm-hmm. Like I, I could take care of you. This is 2001. So this is 17 years ago. So I'm kind of young and kind of still kind of stupid. And I said, Mike, where's our next stop? He says, what do you mean? I said, where do the Astros go next? And he said, LA. I said, man, I'm from Compton. Do we really want to go there? And he, he just started laughing <laughs> awesome. because he, he threw third ward and I'll get my homies and I'm like, dude, I'm from Compton. Are we really going to try to threaten each other by getting our, you know what I'm saying? And he, he laughed and, and, and it was really cool because you can't show fear. There has to be professionalism. I'm from, I don't want to brag, but I'm from Mayo Pack, New York. Also a very tough neighborhood where, uh, we had a a blockbuster video and also like seven pizzerias. So you don't mess with me either. No, I just say it. No, exactly. Well, you know, you know, I, I got to New York working for the journal news. The journal news is is the paper that brought me to New York. So I know those mean streets of of, uh, Westchester County. Before we continue with Two Riders Slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with my wife, Catherine. So can I open my birthday presents? Do it. Oh my God, it's a Laura Branigan record. Open the next one. It's it's a plaid shirt from, from Sears. Try the next one. It's a, it's a mug with Taylor Hicks's picture on it. Wait, there's one more over here. Holy crap! It's a Vince Evans Chicago Blitz jersey from 503 Sports. I'm deaf. Do you like it? I love it. 503 Sports is my all-time favorite place to get throwback sports merchandise. Why? 
because they have it all. We're talking USFL, we're talking World Football League, we're talking XFL, minor league baseball, minor league hockey, old school Portland State, or put differently, if you're a man or woman who has long dreamed of owning a Vince Evans Chicago Blitz jersey, and I sure am, well, dreams come true. The merch at 503 Sports is handcrafted and all very reasonably priced. So be like Catherine Perlman and me and go to 503-sports.com. Type in coupon code YANG18 to get 10% off your first purchase. You know, I was wondering, I was interested in something. Um, when you come to a town, when you come to a new town uh, and you take over as a, uh, as a columnist, doesn't matter if you know the history of it all. Do you need to know that Ozzie Smith was traded for Gary Templeton? Do you need to know about Bob Gibson and Stan Musial? Um, do you need to know about uh, Neil Lomax throwing to Roy Green with the Cardinals back in the 80s? Like, how much of the history of St. Louis sports does a columnist writing about St. Louis sports need to know? In St. Louis, it does. In New York, it does. In, 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 in Houston, it did. And I, this is going to sound very cheesy, but St. Louis doesn't accept outsiders. And from day one, I've been reminded in this town that I am an other. And it sucks. It's a horrible feeling because I've, I've lived in diverse markets where Latinos aren't considered others. You know, LA, born in LA, Houston, New York, Florida. York. And this is the first place where I'm reminded that I'm another. Uh, but so I got, I get a phone call in December by Bill DeWitt Jr., the chairman of the Cardinals. Mm-hmm. And he said, Jesus, I, I want to invite you to our Cardinals Hall of Fame selection committee. And uh, I can't quite explain it, but it made me feel so good because I tried real hard to understand St. Louis. And and the thing that matters most here is, is the Cardinals. The, the thing that unites this very divided city is baseball. The St. Louis Cardinals are the one thing that this very fragile, embattled city can rally around is, is the Cardinals. And, um, and I was so grateful that, and I said, well, you know, Mr. DeWitt, I always call him Mr. And he tells me to call him Bill. And I said, Mr. DeWitt, I'll gladly do it. And I'll, I'll even brush up more on my baseball history. And he said, Jesus, you've been covering baseball for 20 years. It's clear you know what you're talking about. It's clear you know your baseball history, and, and we'd like you to be part of this committee. And um, and and um, to be the only columnist, and the the, the columnist who I wasn't I wasn't born here, I wasn't raised here. Everybody knows it. And to be the only car, uh, the, the post dispatch columnist to have been invited to that felt real felt really good because I've tried to learn the history. And it matters, man. These people care. And, and I've tried, you know, I've, I've spent, I, I try not to write I, I, not to write my columns about myself here. But in January, I was so excited about my, my dinners and interactions with, uh, with Whitey Herzog that I kept writing about it. And finally, I'm like, okay, dude, you have to stop writing about yourself, but because, you know, it was almost like I was trying to validate my place because you, you have to know. You, you, and I, I wrote a column last Sunday that 
that resonated with with a lot of people in the African American community because there the the Cardinals commissioned this song, this Ferguson group to write a song, hip hop rap song similar to in the vein of Hamilton on Bob Gibson. And mm-hmm. I for the I last three weeks I've been interviewing these kids and learning about these kids. And it's amazing that you have 19-year-olds, 23-year-olds, 17-year-olds who had never heard of Bob Gibson until they were asked to read his book so they could write this song about him. And I I wanted to tell the story of how these, these people who grew up 12 miles from Bush Stadium had no idea who Bob Gibson was. So, so that's been fun to kind of tell the story and hopefully, you know, Bob Gibson stood, he fought the battles that many people are fighting now. Bob Gibson fought him 50 years ago in St. Louis and, and to be able to, to tell some of our readers how the black community feels and, and how, you know, I quoted one of the, this young lady, Melina Smith, and she said that, that it felt good, and I'm paraphrasing here, but she said it felt good to be included by the Cardinals because in this city for a black person, it's really easy to feel like you're not included. And, um, and that's, that's been kind of sort of my cross to bear here in St. Louis, just trying to give another side that, that I, I don't think the readers sometimes want to hear judging by the, the racist emails and, and text uh, tweets that I get. But I think it has to be told. Are you getting more of that feedback in this position as far as the negative than you did in Houston or New York? Oh, yeah. And, and obviously Twitter is a huge bullhorn now that we didn't have um, I, when I was in New York. But it's just been different early on. I uh, I pointed out how like in the one year or first few months in St. Louis, I hadn't gotten more racist emails um, and tweets than um, than I had uh, in you know 15 years in Houston. And, and I've I've stated one of the things that I've done in the last six months, or probably the last year, I've stayed a, away from social media. I, you know, I block people, and you know, the first year I tend to I tended to engage them, and all that did was make them happy. In February, it, it got, I wrote a column about Sue's Slew's basketball program and, and Travis Ford kind of imploring them to be more vigilant on who they bring on campus. And, and it was in regard to a suspension of one of their star freshmen. Four, four players ended up either being suspended or leaving the program because of this sexual assault investigation. And, and even after almost two years of being here, I was just stunned by the, by the hatred and the racism. And, and then I'd go and just for kicks, I'd, I'd see the tweets and then I'd go read their timelines. And I'm like, okay, that makes sense. This guy's an idiot. That guy's an idiot. Right. Uh, so, <laughs> so, so my, the, our online sports editor sent me an email. Hey man, heads up. Uh, we, we went through your column and, um, and just deleted some of the, the nasty comments is we're on your side, you know, or whatever. And you know, the, the whole, like, we're going to deport you. I can't wait for you. It's just 
stupid stuff. Uh, some genius said something to the effect of, yeah, well, hey, Ortiz's daughters are porn stars. And I told my wife, uh, I have three daughters, a, a, a 14 year old, 11 year old, a nine year old. And the nine year old has, is just very, very confident. And my wife says, mm-hmm. well, if you told Sydney that comment, she'd only hear star and she wouldn't care. And we just laugh because you just <laughs> have to laugh at some of the stupidity. But, but yeah, no, that's, that's been my biggest battle here in, in St. Louis is every market I've worked at has been way more diverse. So people tend to, and this one, you know, that's, that's been my biggest cross to bear here, I guess. I love the courage that comes with the anonymous tweet or the anonymous email. I love how these people would never say it to your face. Like your name is out there. The way to get in touch with you is out there. Your email is out there. And these guys have the non-curds of firing off some bigoted tweet where they know you're never going to confront them. Yeah. The, the, the key is not to read it, but also show up to events. I mean, I was the only sports person in St. Louis, even the only columnist at my paper to write a column against the um, funding for um, the MLS soccer stadium. Uh, Charlie Brennan from KMOX and I were the only two people in St. Louis who who wrote that this was a huge burden for a city that's, you know, parts of the city are, you know, 30% uh, below the poverty level. And I tried to explain how they, they couldn't just keep burdening these people with, with these taxes, you know, so that people who fled during white flight, and I, I didn't use white flight, but any smart person reading it could get the point that I'm against funding or, or taxing people in the city for stadiums so that people who moved out to the suburbs and fled the city can come and enjoy their sporting events. And I got hammered by, by soccer fans. So like two weeks later, I show up at a USL soccer game and I went to their tailgate. I went to the, you know, and a lot of the, the, the guys could not believe that here's this guy who they'd been crucifying on in, in some of their podcasts and, and some of their tweets had shown up. And there was one guy, the people who invited me are very cool, very nice. And they just wanted me to come see their environment and get to know some of the people so that there'd be a connection there and an understanding. So I show up and as the gentleman is introducing me to some of the members, he says, you know, there's that guy, you know, he mentioned the guy. And I went and I shook his hand. This is a guy who had been ripping me on Twitter nonstop. I go shake his hand and he had nothing to say. And I just, I just smile because I'm thinking, dude, I'm right here. You have to show your face. You have to, the readers, they take their time to, to read your stuff. You have to be accountable to them some way, somehow. And I try to be accountable by, by showing up at events. The, the GM of the, of the Cardinals, Michael Gersh, he got promoted. Then we had lunch. And then af- after lunch, we're about to leave. He says, hey, can I say something? And I said, absolutely. And he brought up a column that I wrote after the, the Cardinals were, were outed as the team that hacked the, the Astros or whatever. And he says, you know, you wrote that you can't fathom that nobody knew. And since I lived with this guy, with Chris Correa, that I, you insinuated that I might have known. He goes, do you understand how it, it, it felt to have, um, to have you write, you know, that, 
that I may have been part of a felony or whatever. And I said, well, that's not how I wrote it. He says, yeah, but you, you wrote that you didn't believe us. And I said, well, I, I don't. I didn't. And, uh, and he goes, well, I just want to just let you know that my first impression of you was that you're an asshole. <laughs> and I said, well, thanks. I said, I, I, I said, I hope, I hope your, your most recent ex- impressions are that I'm not. And we have a great relationship. You can't just take shots and then not give them a chance to say, Hey, I think you're an asshole. And, uh, and I, you know, I've, I've tried really hard not to use those words. So I apologize, but you know, That's okay. I owe it to the people right. I cover to, to be accountable and, and let them be able to tell me, Hey, you know, that column, I didn't appreciate it. I think both you and I came up with New York experiences. And I do feel like being from New York, writing in New York, like there's no other way about it. All those guys who we, whatever, worked with back in the day, or peers from Joel Sherman, uh, Wallace Matthews, those guys were kind of badasses who were not afraid to show up the next day when they wrote something about someone. In fact, not only did they, were they not afraid of it, they viewed it as the honorable and righteous thing to do. And I always remember, I always remember guys like that, Bob Clappish. They were very accountable and they were, they were just, they were there every day. And they weren't going to be intimidated and they weren't going to cower because they wrote something negative about you. I just, I think there's a real power to that. I really do. Yeah. That, the, like those are the guys like watching Bob Clappish, watching Joel Sherman, you knew that, Hey, just do your job, be honest to your craft and show up the next day. I, I love that about, you know, and the, you know, the, you, you haven't, the columnist there, you know, Jerry Eisenberg is, you know, my, I love that guy, you know, and I learned so much working at the Star Ledger and talking to him and those, those guys, they weren't afraid to take an opinion and then show up. And I think you, when you learn from those guys, you, you kind of, hopefully I, I took a little bit from them. I want to ask you a final question and it's kind of a departure. I have in front of me a story you wrote in 2003 for the Houston Chronicle. Uh, the headline was pain continues to linger for Daryl Kyle's widow. And uh, I was covering baseball. You were covering baseball at the time when Daryl Kyle was a member of the St. Louis Cardinals. Uh, and he died at age 33 uh, in his sleep at a hotel room in Chicago. In fact, I think I was with the Cardinals uh, when he died. And you wrote a, uh, seven months later, you did a profile of his widow, Flynn. Uh, the lead is uh, Flynn Kyle tries to fight back the envy and tears, but it's nearly impossible. She just misses Daryl Kyle so much, especially at this time of year. For the first time since she married into baseball's culture 11 years ago, she would not plan a trip to spring training this February. That point hits home clearly when she speaks with other baseball wives planning for spring training and the long baseball season that follows. The grinding routine, which brought a sense of structure to Flynn, is no longer in the forecast. Um, this was one of your pieces that was, that was more, was, was a pretty highly recognized at the time. I think it was in best American sports writing. Um, I, I know it's been, we're going 15 years back here. How hard is it? to approach someone in that situation and how do you approach someone in that situation? I tell you what, that's, that's probably my favorite piece that I wrote and I devoted about a month and I'll tell you something funny about that piece that it'll, I'll never ever forget. My wife found out that we were pregnant with our first child as I was finishing up that piece and I'm in upstairs in the office typing and she walks in with the biggest, and you, you, you've, you've been through this where you're in, you're on a roll, you're, you're feeling, you're just feeling it. 
And she walks in it with the biggest smile on her face. And she says, guess what? And I said, what? She says, we're pregnant. And then I said, are you really telling me right now when I'm in the middle of this? And she, she's <laughs> never forgiven me because I was so into it. But I, I worked for uh, almost from the time he died. I worked on trying to get Flynn to talk to me. Um, I, I, I had a great relationship with Jeff Bagwell, who was one of Daryl's best friends. Uh, Woody Williams helped me. Craig Biggio, uh, Barry Axelrod. I worked, 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 worked on it. And then, you know, when, when those jerks in Arizona, the radio crew that pulled that prank that upset the Cardinals. Oh, yeah. You know, when, when they called her, asked her out. And, um, and finally, I think in, in, um, in January, early January, she agreed to the interview. And we must have spoken maybe eight times. Um, and each time, she was a little bit more open. Um, and it was, it was difficult. And I don't know if you, you did, you, you do this, but I always try to identify something where we can relate, where the subject and I can relate, whether it's my upbringing, whether it's my parents. And I, I, I think I told her the story about my dad and my, my dad lost his father at um, a very young age. And, and I, I think we, we started connecting over those phone calls. And, you know, the first two were just trying to see if, if she granted it. It was the first, uh, newspaper interview she granted. And you just show empathy. When, when I, when I talk to journalism students, I talk about empathy being the most important characteristic of a journalist. Um, and, and I think if, if people feel, comfortable in sharing their story feel they could trust you with their story you'll get better stories but for them to feel comfortable is they have to know that you care and it has to be real it can't be fake and and you know i've you know i grew up poor i um you know my parents are from mexico english as a second language um and I was, when I was 13, I was almost killed by a drunk driver. So there's, I have a great appreciation for life. I am, I think you've, you've seen me. I'm, there's not a day I show up at the clubhouse where I'm not happy and, and grateful to have this job. And, you know, my, my, my dad worked construction. My mom was a seamstress. Um, and, and I'm always happy. So, so when I'm, when I'm talking to people, I try to connect. And I think with, with Flynn Kyle, I just wanted to connect and it, and it, but, but it helped that, you know, Jeff Bagwell put in a good word. It helped that, you know, Barry Axelrod put in a word, good word. And, and also it helped that Houston was so important to her. You know, he had played for the Cardinals and he had played for the Rockies, but Houston is where he started. And, and where they made many of their closest friendships. Hey, Seuss, I, uh, I got to say, I feel like I saw you as a uh, coming up. I mean, we're probably around the same age. Saw you through the years in the clubhouse at the Mets and then followed your career. And it, it uh, I think it's great the path that your career has taken. And, uh, 
you know, couldn't happen to a better, uh, you know, a better representative of, of our profession, man. So uh, I appreciate your time very much here. I'm humbled that you say that. And, and as you know, I'm a big fan of yours. I, I collect all your books, uh, but not only do I collect them, but like I show them off to, to my kids and the ones where I'm either quoted or my work is quoted. I want to thank today's guest, Jesus Ortiz, for joining me on Two Riders Slinging Yang. You can follow Jesus on Twitter at Ortiz Kicks and read his work in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. This podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. You can visit the website at 503-sports.com. One can listen to Two Riders Slinging Yang on iTunes and Google Play, and reviews are always appreciated. Music is by MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing. Keep writing.